The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here. The History of Egypt podcast is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Podcasters collaborating to bring you history, education, politics, and more. If you are interested in a new show, consider Mid-Atlantic by Royfield Brown. Mid-Atlantic looks at politics and current events in Britain and the United States. Every show consists of American and British pundits reviewing and commentating on the most important pieces of news, with host Royfield Brown officiating. Always accessible, Mid-Atlantic lifts the lid on the special relationship between the transatlantic cultural cousins. Hi there listeners, Dominic here. The events that this episode describes take place over an uncertain period of time at an uncertain date. It is likely that they transpired late in the reign of Amunhotep III, father of Akhenaten and majestic but aloof ruler of Egypt. However, it is also possible that they occurred or transitioned into the early years of Akhenaten himself. So the date is unclear. Furthermore, The countries and people that I describe here connect heavily with events during Akhenaten's second decade in power. So, after going back and forth on whether to write this episode during the last years of Amunhotep III or the reign of Akhenaten, I chose the latter. That way, the events of this episode will have a tangible and easy-to-understand effect on the next episode. But yeah, Just bear in mind that, historically, the story I'm about to tell is a little bit unclear. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 123, Amorites and Where to Find Them. Today, we begin a short series of episodes looking at the Egyptian Empire in Canaan and Syria. Akhenaten's imperial regime controlled many towns throughout the Near East, but Pharaoh's power was not always invincible. Challenges could and did occur. Today, we examine one of these. This episode was sponsored by Vanessa, Dennis and Elna, who became patrons of the podcast at the start of 2019 and have supported me ever since. Vanessa, Dennis, Elna, thank you dearly. Your backing is generous and I could not be more grateful. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the show. This episode takes place outside of Egypt, in a part of the world we don't get to visit very often. So, before we begin, I've created a basic map on the podcast website. This map covers the general area I'm talking about, with markers for the important places and their rulers. Hopefully, it keeps everything in order. The link is in the episode description, or visit EgyptianHistoryPodcast.com, episode 123. 
Our story today takes us far from Egypt, far from the tranquil waters of the Nile Valley. We are headed for the land to the north, to the distant frontiers of Pharaoh's empire. To reach our destination, we must sail out of the Nile Delta and travel along the Mediterranean coast, heading east and then north. We pass the Sinai Peninsula with its cold, wet winds and its endless dunes ready to swallow the unwary. We sail along the southern coast of Canaan, past Egyptian bases like Gaza and Joppa, where officials stockpiled food and weapons. Then we move further north, past other cities that exist to this day, Tyre and Sidon, Beirut and Byblos, until we reach a land that nowadays is part of the country Lebanon. This is our destination. Disembarking our ship, we are confronted with a rugged land. The coastline is a narrow strip, and mountain ranges tower in the east. The peaks are formidable, up to 3,000 metres tall. In the winter, snow blankets the heights. Below, the foothills are thickly forested. Depending on the season, the climate is either a dry summer or a shivering, rainy winter. In this part of the world, ancient people worked hard to build a way of life out of challenging surroundings. If we travelled inland from the coast, finding our way through the mountains, we would eventually reach a country called Amuru. Amuru, or Amer in Egyptian, was a small backwater area. It was lined with mountains with deep river valleys in between. Thick forests covered the slopes, and snow sometimes capped the peaks. In the more hospitable regions, shepherds and herders made their homes among foothills, and farmers grew crops in the more fertile parts of the country. The kingdom, quote-unquote, was isolated from the sea. It lacked major ports or any access to the coast. And in the world of the Bronze Age, this made Amaru a small, unimportant area, in the middle of great empires. Of course, the leaders of Amaru wanted to change that, and around this time they started to pursue greater status. This is where our story begins, with a lord of Amaru named Abdi Asherta. Abdi Asherta, or servant of Asherta, was the ruler of this small, out-of-the-way country. He was a vassal of Egypt, giving his tribute and loyalty to the pharaoh. Apparently, Abdi obtained his throne thanks to the king of Egypt. A text from this time indicates that the pharaoh had, quote, placed Abdi Asherta over the Amorites, end quote. So, Abdi Asherta was Egypt's loyal vassal, a man put in power thanks to the grace of Pharaoh. When our story begins around 1365 BCE, Abdi Asherta was already in power. We're not sure how long, but what we do know is that his reign was going to prove notable in many ways. Having taken charge of Amaru and its people, Abdi Asherta soon began to transform this land into a noteworthy regional powerhouse. To understand how Abdi Asherta did this, we need a quick geopolitical recap. For the last 100 years, the rulers of Amaru had given their loyalty and tribute to the pharaoh of Egypt. The country was part of the Egyptian Empire, which stretched from the Sinai Peninsula up through Canaan and into southern Syria. 
It was a land of many ethnicities, peoples and territories, each with their own rulers and all giving loyalty to the pharaoh. A few generations earlier, warrior kings like Thutmose III and Amunhotep II had swept through this part of the world. Soldiers marched out of Egypt to capture towns, intimidate leaders, and destroy any who resisted. Following this wave of conquests, the Egyptian monarchs had taken care to fortify their new holdings. They established small power bases at major cities throughout the area, and they put officials, representatives, in charge of the various strongholds. Now, the pharaoh's commissioners held sway over the region, keeping an eye on the locals and ensuring that the peoples of Canaan and Syria gave their loyalty and their tribute to the pharaoh, lord of battles, ruler of all. Of course, the situation was a lot more complicated than that. Local rulers were not always obedient to the king's wishes, and they squabbled among themselves endlessly. Arguments were common, and the vassals were always watching their neighbours, anxious in case anyone got too powerful, or the pharaoh favoured anyone too closely. This was the situation in which Abdi Ashirta, lord of Amaru, came to prominence. When he first gained power, Abdi Ashirta's land was in a precarious position. Not only was it poor, with no access to the Mediterranean trade routes, but it nestled between other, far more powerful kingdoms. Amaru sat between three great powers, Egypt in the south, Mitanni in the east, and to the north, a growing power called the Hittites. During his lifetime, Abdi Ashirta would mainly be concerned with Egypt and Mitanni, but when it comes to the Hittites, well... Let's just say, keep that name in mind. For the first few years, Abdi Ashirta was a loyal vassal to the pharaoh. He sent letters to the king of Egypt, proclaiming his loyalty and dispatching gifts. In these early days, probably during the last years of Amunhotep III, Abdi Ashirta was the very image of a loyal subject. He wrote messages like the following, quote, To the king, the son, my lord, Message of Abdi Ashirta, your servant, the dirt under your feet. I fall at the feet of my king, my lord, seven times and seven times. As I am a servant for the king, and a mere dog of his house, I guard Amaru for the king, my lord. The ruler of Amaru called himself a servant of the king, and a dog of his house, and even the mud under your feet. Phrases like these show up a lot in the Amarna letters, suggesting that hierarchy and subservience were important attitudes for pharaoh's vassals. In this day and age, status and prestige were vital parts of any royal relationship. For men like Abdi Ashirta, it was essential to give the pharaoh his glory. Other letters fill out the shadowy period when Abdi Ashirta was still a loyal subject to the king. On one occasion, the Lord of Amaru dispatched, quote, ten beautiful women to Egypt. He sent this at the king's request, and in return, Abdi Ashirta asked his overlord to, quote, send an official to protect me. Now, it's not exactly clear which pharaoh asked for these women, 
But again, it was probably Amunhotep III, who is well known for asking his foreign friends to send him beautiful ladies. The gift of women was a noteworthy, but for us, slightly dubious offering. While we talk about these events with the comforting distance of history, it's always vital to remember that these were very real, very powerful experiences for the people witnessing them. Those women that Abri Ashurta sent had to endure forced relocation from their homeland, possibly more than once, and their lives were not theirs to control. Likewise, the many communities that bore witness to the conflicts of this period undoubtedly suffered greatly. People lost their lives, blood was spilled, and a great deal of pain was inflicted on innocent bystanders. Abdi's gift are a stern reminder of the cost, in lives, that the Egyptian empire, all empires really, involved. For a few years, Abdi Ashiata was loyal, but eventually things began to change. We're not sure why, maybe the threat of foreign powers, encouraged him to seek security outside of Egypt's empire. Maybe he wanted wealth and glory, or maybe he was threatened. Whatever the cause, Abdi soon began to push beyond his borders and started expanding his kingdom. He was surprisingly successful. Sometime around 1365 BCE, give or take, Abdi Ashurta went rogue. The Lord of Amaru started to expand his dominion, sending warriors out to intimidate local communities and force them to join him. We hear about this from Abdi's neighbours. As the Lord of Amaru started his campaigns, the other lords around this country reported on the events. These letters are difficult to untangle. Very few of them have dates, so the chronology is impossible to know for certain. But as far as scholars can reconstruct, Abdi Ashirta seems to have acted as follows. First up, Abdi gathered warriors from the outlaws, brigands, and landless peasantry of his land. Then, he began to send these warriors out to raid the surrounding countryside. His troops intimidated local leaders, ransacked communities, and waylaid travellers on the road. From the forests and mountains of central Lebanon, these brigands caused havoc in the countryside. Eventually, they started to attack prosperous towns, and pressure their leaders into joining Abdi Ashurta's kingdom. The reports are alarming. Apparently, Abdi Ashurta was capturing cities quickly and encouraging rebellion among local peasants. Before too long, some of the major coastal towns were cut off from one another, and the land of Amaru started to form into a cohesive state. In one daring escapade, Abdi Ashurta even attacked the city of Sumer, This was a town near the Mediterranean coast, and one of the main strongholds of Egypt's northern empire. Sumer was a power base. It had an Egyptian governor living in its palace, and his name was Pahamnate. The city itself was part of the bustling Mediterranean trade network. This made it a tempting target, and when the Egyptian governor left Sumer on business, Abdi Ashirta seized his opportunity. At some point, maybe in the last years of Amunhotep III, Abdi Ashirta's men entered the city of Sumer and occupied it. They did not do this openly. Abdi wasn't stupid enough to launch an attack in broad daylight. Instead, the Lord of Amaru claimed that he was occupying Sumer in order to protect it from local threats. 
In a remarkable letter, Abdi tells the Egyptian governor, Pahamnate, that the foreigners were menacing the city. He claims that Sumer was undefended, that its leading citizens had fled, and that, on account of this, the city was vulnerable to attack. Thus, Abdi Ashirta occupied Sumer, and he justified it as follows, quote, To Pahamnate, my lord, message of Abdi Ashirta, your servant. I fall at the feet of my lord, but I ask you, what do the words that you speak mean? You say to me, quote, You, Abdi Ashirta, are an enemy of Egypt, and you have committed a crime against Egyptians, end quote. But may my lord listen. There were no men in Sumer to guard the city as you had ordered, and Sumer was afraid of the troops of Shechlal. So I myself hastened to Sumer, and I rescued it from the troops of Shechlal. If I had not been staying nearby, if I had been staying where life is peaceful, then the troops of Shechlal would surely have sent Sumer and its palace up in flames. When I myself hastened to the rescue and arrived in Sumer, there were only four men that had stayed on in the palace, and they said to me, quote, Save us from the troops of Shechlal. And so I saved them. I did not expel them. My lord, the other mayors lie to you, and yet you keep on listening to them. End quote. There's a lot to unpack there, so let's break it down. Basically, Abdi Ashirta occupied the city of Sumer on a pretext. He claimed that a foreigner, Shechlal, was threatening the city, and that Sumer was all but defenseless. So, Abdi Ashirta advanced in order to defend the town from the enemy troops. Abdi Ashirta came to the palace of Sumer and found that most of the local leaders had fled. Those who remained begged him to protect the city, and so Abdi Ashirta took control of Sumer. The incident apparently prompted an outraged response from Pahamnate, the Egyptian governor. He accused Abdi Ashirta of treachery, of being an enemy of Egypt. But Abdi rejected this, and proclaimed, loudly, that his actions were done in service of Egypt. In Abdi's version of events, he was a loyal subject, the saviour of a city that had been defenceless. We're not sure how the pharaoh received the news of these events, but Abdi's excuses seem to have worked, at least temporarily. He took control of Sumer and began administering it, claiming to do so in his overlord's name. Abdi's neighbours and the governor, Pahamnate, cried foul, but Pharaoh did not punish his vassal directly. So Abdi Ashirta's gamble paid off. He now ruled a noteworthy town, and his kingdom had access to the Mediterranean Sea. It was, in all respects, a most satisfying victory. As Abdi Ashirta made his early moves and expanded the kingdom of Amaru, reports began to fly back to Egypt, telling the king what was happening. These reports primarily come from Amaru's neighbours, and none were more concerned than the ruler of Byblos. Byblos, or Gubla in the ancient tongue, was a major city on the coast of Lebanon. It was incredibly ancient, and the people of Byblos had been trading with Egyptians for more than a thousand years. Byblos, or Gubla, was a valuable part of the Egyptian empire, and its ruler knew that very well. Byblos was ruled by a mayor, a man named Rib Adi. 
Rebadi is a famous name when it comes to Bronze Age diplomacy. He is one of the most prominent figures to show up in the Amarna letters, for he sent dozens of messages to the pharaoh during his time in office. Rebadi was so prolific that out of 380 surviving letters, more than 60 come from his frantic pen. This has given Rebadi a bit of a reputation as a complainer, a whiner, even a political hypochondriac, which is a little bit unfair, and we will analyse those accusations in the next episode. Suffice to say, the mayor of Byblos had good reason to be worried, and although he wrote many, many letters, his concerns were, at least partially, justified. As the Lord of Amaru marched into the town of Sumer, Rib-Adi was watching. The mayor of Byblos could see, as well as anyone, that Abdi Ashurta now posed a threat. Problem was, the mayor was having trouble convincing others to respond or even acknowledge the danger. In a letter to the local Egyptian governor, Rib-Adi begged for military assistance, for the power of Pharaoh to help him in dark times. He said, quote, To hire the vizier, Message of Rib'adi. I fall at your feet. May Amun, the god of the king, your lord, establish your honour in the presence of the king. You, Chaya, are a wise man. The king knows this. And because of your wisdom, he sent you as a commissioner. But why have you been negligent, not speaking to the king, so that he will send archers to retake Sumer? What is Abdi Ashurta, a servant and a dog, that he takes the land of the king for himself? Through the Apiru, his army is strong. Rebadi, the mayor of Beblos, could see the danger. The lord of Amaru was expanding westward, occupying towns along the Lebanese coast. If he continued on this path, then eventually Abdi and his warriors, called the Apiru, would surround more of the local towns. The army would grow, and the problem would eventually become too great to contain. Rabadi, apparently, could see this, and he begged one of the Egyptian commissioners, a man named Haya, to send him some reinforcements. In the last part of his letter, he said, quote, Send me fifty pairs of horses and two hundred warriors, so that I may resist the enemy, in the city of Shigata, until the coming forth of Pharaoh's archers. Do not let Abdi gather together all of the Apiru so that he can take the town of Shigata. If he does, there will be no place where men can enter against him. End quote. Abdi Ashirta and his warriors were gaining strength. His army, made up of groups called the Apiru, were marshalling, and their numbers were growing. Surely, Pharaoh could see that this was a great threat. Surely, Rebadi could count on Egypt's support in the struggle that was inevitably to come. The Lord of Amaru was now in a very strong position. He had forged a new kingdom in the heart of Egypt's empire. As you can imagine, this kind of success was just the beginning. Soon, Abdi Ashurta would start to expand once more. Coming up in chapter 2, the battle heats up. Abdi Ashurta turns his attention to Byblos and the towns which Rabadi governed. The struggle gets fierce, and Rabati begs to know, why was Pharaoh not helping him? Also, we investigate the question, who were Abdi Ashurta's warriors? This group, called the Apiru, 
Where did they come from? And are they connected at all to the early Hebrews? All that and more after the break. See you in a moment. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The year was approximately 1365 BCE. We're not sure when exactly, but these events probably took place in the last few years when Amunhotep III was king of Egypt. Eventually, they would cross over to the reign of Akhenaten, but the exact chronology is unknown. What we do know is that in the area of Lebanon, troubles were plaguing the Egyptian empire. The lord of Amaru, a man named Abdi Ashirta, was growing powerful. He had gathered an army of followers and begun raiding his neighbours. Pretty soon, he even captured a major Egyptian bastion, the town of Sumer, which put him in direct conflict with the representatives of Pharaoh. Now, Abdi Ashirta was expanding once again. Soon after his victory at Sumer, one of Abdi's neighbours wrote to the Pharaoh, the mayor of Beblos, a man named Rebadi, was concerned, and with good reason. Although Sumer had fallen, still the warriors of Pharaoh remained at home, unresponsive to the problem. What was the king waiting for? Abdi Ashirta's march continued, and soon his warriors, the Apiru, were battering at the gates of towns in Rebadi's dominion. The mayor of Beblos technically governed at least three or four communities in the area. Now, Abdi Ashirta and the warriors of Amaru were moving against Beblos directly. Rabadi reported this to his king, dutifully, but with alarm. He said, quote, Rabadi says to the king of all countries, the great king, the king of battle, May the lady of Beblos, Hathor, grant power to the king, my lord. I fall at the feet of my lord, my son, seven times and seven times. May the king know that the war against me is severe. Abdi Ashirta wants to take for himself the two cities that have remained loyal to me. Moreover, Abdi Ashirta, that dog, strives to take the land of the king for himself. He has gathered together all the Apiru against Shigata and Ampi, and he has taken those two cities. I now say, there is no place where man can enter against him. End quote. 
The war between Reb Adi, mayor of Beblos, and Abdi Ashirta, lord of Amaru, was heating up. Defending the cities of Shigata and Ampi, both of which are on the map, Rabadi's warriors sought to stem the enemy's advance. They failed, and the two cities, or their leaders, surrendered to Abdi's men. All of a sudden, the lord of Amaru had gained two more towns on the Lebanese coast, and Rabadi of Beblos was starting to lose his grip on power. At this point, Rabadi started to beg the pharaoh for assistance. In the second part of this letter, the mayor said, quote, Please, send me a garrison of 400 men and teams of horses with all speed. For years, archers would come out to inspect the countryside, and yet now that the land of the king and Sumer, your bastion, have joined to the Apiru and Abdi Ashirta, you have done nothing. Send a large force of archers so that it may drive out the king's enemies, and all lands can be joined to the king once more. You are a great lord, you must not neglect this message. Rabadi begged the pharaoh for reinforcements to bolster his defences and resist the machinations of the enemy. The mayor was confused about the king's silence. Why wasn't the pharaoh reacting? Did he not care that his empire was being damaged by one wayward ruler? Surely it would be a simple matter to crush Abdi Ashirta if only the pharaoh would send an army of reasonable size. And yet, nothing was being done. Two cities of Lebanon fell, and soon Rabadi was getting desperate. Having failed to defend Shigata and Ampi, the mayor of Byblos now retreated to a city called Batruna. At this point, he seems to have had just two major communities left in his small kingdom, Batruna itself and the home city of Byblos. With this foreign threat breathing down his neck, Rabadi dispatched yet another message to his king. He said, quote, Rabadi says to his lord, the king of all countries, the great king, etc., etc., etc. May the king, my lord, know that the war of Abdi Ashirta against me is severe. He has taken all of my cities. Now only two towns remain to me, and even these he strives to take. Like a bird in a trap, so am I trapped in Byblos. May my lord heed the words of his servant. I have just been in Batruna. Please send a garrison, thirty pairs of horses, in the charge of your commissioner. End quote. This message is broken towards the end, so we don't know the full details of what Rabadi asked from his king. What is clear is that the mayor of Byblos, and the ruler of Batruna, was losing ground rapidly. As the enemy warriors, Abdi Ashirta and his Apiru, advanced, Rabadi was losing his grip on territory. Once again, he wrote to Pharaoh asking for help. And once again, the reply seems to have been silence. Why was the king of Egypt, either Amunhotep III or Akhenaten, not responding promptly to this situation? It seems that a vassal had gone rogue and was expanding his kingdom at a critical border zone. Surely this was grounds for concern. Well, the answer is tricky. To make his country into something more than a regional backwater, the Lord of Amaru had to overcome at least three challenges. The first challenge he would face was opportunity. Amaru was surrounded, pretty much on all sides, by the cities and vassals of the pharaoh, so expansion was going to be difficult. Whatever direction he moved in, Abdi would be going against Egypt's interests. That could pose a problem. So the second challenge was diplomacy. 
Abdi Ashirta needed to expand his kingdom in a way that did not seem like a rebellion or an attack on the pharaoh's vassals. Both problems, opportunity for conquest and the need to maintain good relations with Egypt, were serious issues. How would the Lord of Amaru solve them? Abdi Ashurta's situation required an unusual solution, and he found one in the form of an ally. Not long before these events began, Abdi Ashurta had the great idea to make friends with a group of locals, a mysterious band who might provide the help he needed. These locals are called the Apiru, and they are a most interesting bunch indeed. Early in his reign, Abdi Ashurta gathered followers or allies from the group known as the Apiru. This is a curious group. Apiru, or Habiru, translates roughly as fugitive or refugee, and it could apply to a variety of people in different situations. During the Late Bronze Age, when our story takes place, the term Apiru had a derogatory sense. Depending on context, Apiru could mean outlaw, vagabond, or even public enemy. A recent equivalent might be the European prejudices against the Romani, or Gypsies, and the misconceptions that circulate about them. So yeah, Apiru seem to be the outcasts of late Bronze Age Canaan, the people, or peoples, whom others looked down upon and viewed with hostility. According to the letters which Rabadi and others sent to the pharaoh, Abdi Ashurta employed Apiru as his warriors. We can't be sure if these were a single community or tribe, or small bands of ruffians, or even just little groups here and there. Either way, Abdi's neighbours accused him of allying with the outlaws to wage war in Lebanon. Presumably, the lord of Amaru offered them plunder and wealth if they served his needs. Doing that, Abdi was able to quickly forge a fighting force, one that technically wasn't part of his kingdom. Looking at this situation strategically, with a little bit of modern sensibility, I'm starting to wonder if Abdi used the Apiru as a sort of false flag operation, a strategy designed to conceal responsibility and deceive the Egyptian government. The Apiru were men of no country, they didn't belong to anyone, so Abdi Ashurta had plausible deniability regarding their deeds. The outlaws could sweep into a community, raise havoc, and then Abdi Ashurta could show up to save the day and protect the town. Such a deception would enable Abdi to attack where he pleased, while officially still acting in Pharaoh's interests. I'm not usually one for conspiracy theories, but this one does explain a couple of nagging problems. For example, we must wonder how Abdi Ashurta got away with all of these attacks for as long as he did. Well, maybe this is why. Perhaps Abdi's deception worked and kept the true situation obscure, so that the king of Egypt couldn't quite be sure of the truth. With that kind of uncertainty, Abdi Ashurta's deception bought him time, and with enough time, he could secure his own position. So, Maybe Abdi Ashurta employed the Apiru as a way of hedging his bets. He gathered the brigands, the outcasts of Canaanite society, and offered them a way to gain wealth. All they had to do was raid, plunder, and steal from his neighbours, and while they did that, Abdi could publicly deny any involvement. 
with a little bit of cunning, perhaps the Allies could steal their way to political prominence. Now, let me digress briefly to discuss the elephant in the room. It's a big one, so indulge me for a moment. It has to do with the Bible. Given the name of this group, Apiru or Habiru, depending on the translation, it's probably not surprising that many scholars wonder if these were the early Hebrews. The names seem to parallel nicely, and the word Apiru might connect with the Hebrew word Ibrim, which means, well, Hebrews. Then you have the political context, stories of turmoil in Canaan, of roving warbands and political disruption. And these might have been some of the inspiration for narratives in the early Hebrew Bible. Chronologically, these stories might fit with traditions of the Exodus, which is a big subject in itself. As you can imagine, this kind of question is sensitive for many reasons. Once again, the term apiru means fugitive or refugee. Broadly speaking, the term seems to apply to a social class rather than a single community, ethnicity or culture. So the word was probably used to describe a broad category of people, the type of individuals who didn't fit within the worldview of other communities. In short, the apiru were the quintessential outsiders, and that could mean different things depending on the person using the word. None of this negates the possibility that the apiru are precursors to the biblical Hebrews, but it does mean that we have to be cautious about marrying late Bronze Age texts with a book that was composed, edited, and refined many centuries later. Perhaps a group of apiru, a particular tribe or confederation, eventually became the young Hebrew or Israelite community. Perhaps the Hebrews took inspiration from the term, transforming a derogatory word into a badge of honour, or a way to differentiate themselves from others. This second interpretation is something which Jan Asman, a German Egyptologist and long-running scholar of this material, argues quite elegantly. In his 2018 book, The Invention of Religion, Faith and Covenant in the Book of Exodus, Asman suggests, quote, It is entirely possible that a group of Canaanites who rejected the Egyptian occupying force and its vassals may have cultivated an alternative lifestyle. That they self-consciously positioned themselves outside the city-states and in opposition to them, and that they consequently appropriated a term of abuse, apiru, for themselves. The term apiru, wanderers, vagrants, bandits, or outlaws, is apt for a group that based its shared identity not just on biological kinship, but also, and especially, on common alternative social practices. End quote. Basically, Asman is suggesting that the apiru may be a group or groups who rejected the normal bourgeois city living and went nomad. They lived outside the normal way of life and rejected its ways. And perhaps, over time, these practices transformed into a community spirit, a sense of self, one that eventually forged a new cultural identity. Maybe, just maybe, these apiru are the first chapter in the biblical Hebrew story. I'm not a biblical historian, I'm not a linguist, so this kind of debate about a particular word and its meaning in the context of Near Eastern cultures is outside my expertise. The idea seems to have some merit, and I certainly would not be surprised if it were true, at least partially. 
To be fair, it's easy to imagine a way that an outcast group, loosely defined, might eventually have formed a new community. But it could also be a coincidence, a quirk of language history that doesn't mean what it seems to mean. On the current available evidence, we should be cautious. All we can say for sure is that the Apiru were a broad category of people whom the city dwellers considered outcasts and fugitives. Beyond that, we are still in the dark. Now, we've discussed the Apiru and a possible reason why Abdi Ashurta was able to expand his kingdom without reprisal for some time. There is another explanation though, and it's a little bit more suspicious. Back in chapter 1 of this episode, we learned how Abdi Ashurta, Lord of Amaru, actually gained his position from the pharaoh. The king of Egypt had made Abdi lord of his country, and now that he was expanding his territory, is it possible that he was doing so with pharaoh's consent? Maybe, just maybe, Abdi was doing something that the king of Egypt considered useful. Abdi Ashurta was scrupulous when it came to promising that he was a loyal subject of Pharaoh. His letters, sent to the king and to the Egyptian governors, practically drip with sycophantic language. The Lord of Amaru always refers to himself as a loyal servant, or Aradkiti in the local language. He calls himself a dog, the mud beneath Pharaoh's feet. He protests endlessly that he is an attentive vassal who guards the king's frontiers and protects his communities. Now, this second interpretation has a little bit of a conspiracy theory flavour to it, but let's consider the big picture. The country of Amaru was on the edge of the Egyptian empire in Canaan. To the north and east, great powers like the Mitanni were still a potential threat. Even if the Mitanni and Egypt were friendly at the moment, maybe it wouldn't hurt to have a strong military power bolstering Egypt's frontier. This second interpretation may sound a little bit far-fetched, but it actually has a tiny shred of evidence to corroborate it. Abdi Ashirta, Lord of Amaru, was now sitting pretty. When he first came to power, his country was humble, a land of mountains, river valleys, and forests, with shepherds and farmers as his best resource. Now, he had expanded his territory, reaching all the way to the Mediterranean coast. He ruled at least one major town, the Egyptian bastion of Sumer, and he had gained possession of several more. His neighbours were panicking, and the pharaoh seemed disinterested. With luck, Abdi Ashurta had the makings of a real, lasting kingdom. Naturally, all of this local instability was going to attract some attention, but not from the pharaoh. Instead, Abdi Ashurta's first test came from Mitanni. East of Lebanon, in what is now Syria and Iraq, the kingdom of Mitanni was nearly 200 years old. Once, it had been a supreme power, dominating much of the region. By now, though, it was fading a little bit. Still, Mitanni wasn't out of the fight. They had teeth, and Abdi Ashurta would learn that quite suddenly in the middle of his ascent. Sometime during all of these events, we're not exactly sure when, Abdi's attempt to make Amaru a regional power was rudely interrupted. 
Based on a few letters from the Amana corpus, it seems that just as Amuru was rising, the king of Mitanni decided to visit or invade the region. One letter says, quote, Furthermore, the king of Mitanna has come out as far as Sumur, and though he wanted to march as far as Byblos, he returned to his own land, for there was no water for him to drink. End quote. A second message adds further detail, and we hear how the king of Mitanni, or Mitanna in the local language, plundered the country of Amaru itself. In this second letter, Pharaoh was told, quote, Day and night, Amaru has cried out to you. They say that what is taken from them to Matana is very much. End quote. Both of these letters came from Repadi, and maybe we should be suspicious about the accuracy of his report. After all, the mayor of Byblos was well known for crying wolf, sounding the alarm at every opportunity. Perhaps Rabadi was exaggerating events for the sake of getting Pharaoh's attention. Well, I don't think so. You see, at the same time that Rabadi was sending his messages, another of Pharaoh's vassals sent a letter reporting on the same situation. This chap said, quote, Speak to the great king, my lord. Message of Tehu Teshup, your servant. I fall at the feet of my lord. Be informed that the king of Mitanni came forth, together with chariots and together with an expeditionary troop. We have heard nothing at all, and we are afraid of him. End quote. The situation seems reasonably clear. In the midst of the political chaos, with Abdi Ashirta marching around Lebanon, the king of Mitanni attacked suddenly out of the east. He came forth with troops and chariots, advancing rapidly into the country of Amaru and plundering the land. Now, why he did this is unclear. It's possible that the Matani king was responding to the situation, taking advantage of Abdi Ashirta's distraction. As the lord of Amaru was expanding his kingdom, maybe the king of Matani saw an opportunity for a quick victory. Or maybe the Matani ruler actually hoped to capture Abdi Ashirta and encourage him to switch sides, giving his loyalty to Matani rather than Egypt. This second motivation, I suspect, is the more likely. The Mitanni king advanced, but he did not stay for long. After a while, the invaders withdrew, but as they left, the foreign king took a valuable prisoner with him. Somewhere in this invasion, the king of Mitanni was able to apprehend or capture Abdi Ashirta, and when he departed, he took the lord of Amaru with him. A letter tells us, quote, that dog, Abdi Ashirta, is in Matana, but his eye remains on Byblos. Moreover, all of the city lords, the mayors, are now at peace with Abdi Ashirta. End quote. Basically, the king of Matani swept into Amaru, despoiled the land, and captured Abdi Ashirta. The situation was quite fraught. Abdi was not independent so much as dependent on the goodwill and tolerance of far more powerful rulers. His story, so far, may sound like an unbroken string of successes, but they are a small unbroken string of successes. Even at his most powerful, Abdi Ashurta was still the ruler of a minor kingdom, one in the midst of great powers. The king of Matani eventually left Lebanon, and he apparently released Abdi Ashurta, perhaps in exchange for a pledge of loyalty. We don't hear that much about this, 
only that the Mitanni ruler left and Abdi, once again, resumed his aggression in the region. Well, he did that after a while. First, Abdi Ashurta had to contend with a very real, very human problem. He got sick. For a little while after the Mitanni invasion, Abdi Ashurta was quiet. He stayed in Amaru, maybe taking care of internal issues, and at one point we even know that he fell ill. Rabadi, the mayor of Byblos and correspondent of these events, wrote to the pharaoh of Egypt and notified him, quote, The king of Mitanni visited the land of Amaru, and he said, How great is this land! Your land, Amaru, is extensive! Please, may the king of Egypt come with all speed and take everything back. Get archers. Abdi Ashurta is very ill. Who knows, when he dies, what might happen? End quote. So, soon after the Mitanni invasion, Abdi Ashurta got sick, maybe almost died. And Rabadi begged the pharaoh to seize the opportunity to come forth with soldiers and reclaim everything that Abdi had taken. Once again, the king of Egypt was silent and the situation dragged on. Abdi Ashurta's illness lingered for a while, but then he recovered. And when the lord of Amaru was back in fighting shape, he and his warriors began to lay waste to the countryside once more. Once again, their attacks focused on their neighbour, Rabadi of Byblos, and the warriors of Amiru, including that elusive group called Apiru, began to lay waste to the regions of Byblos. As this happened yet again, Rabadi wrote to the pharaoh, and he said, quote, Though I keep writing like this to the king my lord, he does not heed my words. Abdi Ashurta has attacked me three times this year, and for two years I have been repeatedly robbed of my grain. We have no grain to eat. What can I say to my peasants? Their sons, their daughters, the furnishings of their houses are gone. They have been sold for provisions to keep us alive. May the king, my lord, heed the words of his loyal servant, and may he send grain in ships in order to keep his servant and his city, Byblos, alive. End quote. This is a dark but interesting record. It seems that the lord of Amaru began targeting the fields, the agricultural support base of Rabadi's kingdom. Stealing food was a good way to weaken your enemy and to strengthen your own cause especially if the enemy was a mayor of a large city, with a large population to keep happy and lots of hungry mouths to feed. The warriors of Amaru and the Apiru spread across the countryside of Lebanon, like locusts devouring the crops. Desperate to overcome these challenges, Rabadi asked for food, basically for aid to keep his city and his population alive. He also asked for soldiers and for additional supplies in order to maintain the war effort and, hopefully, defeat Abdi Ashurta. In the rest of this letter, he said, May the king, my lord, grant 400 men and 30 pairs of horses with chariots, as were given to other cities, so that they may guard Byblos for you. The grain that used to be given to Sumer, may it now be given to Byblos, so that we may have provisions until you give thought to your city. End quote. Rabadi begged the pharaoh to send supplies and warriors, and this time he needed even more troops. Presumably, the pharaoh had not responded earlier. Now, the situation was worse, and instead of 200 men, Rabadi needed 400 to rectify the situation. Still, 
The king of Egypt was silent, and Rabadi's people limped on, their doom growing ever closer. By this time, all hope was fading. We now come to the end of chapter 2. Dark times are falling over Lebanon, and Abdi Ashurta is ascendant. After the break, we witness the final clash, and come to terms with how the Lord of Amaru was able to succeed with this audacious, reckless war. Who were his allies that he could betray Pharaoh like this? And who, pray tell, were these Apiru that kept showing up in his army? All that in chapter 3, after the music. See you in a moment. The power of Amaru grew, and the strength of Byblos failed. Rabadi, the mayor of Byblos, was in dire straits. He had barred the gates to anyone coming out of Amaru, and he considered himself and his city to be in a state of siege. Rabadi was at a loss, and in one more letter, he begged the local Egyptian officials to act. Quote, Message to Amanapa, an Egyptian name, from Rabadi. I fall at your feet. Behold, I was distressed, angry at your words, which said, quote, I am to make my way to you. You are always writing like this to me. Listen, tell the king to give you 300 men so that we can visit the city and regain it for the pharaoh. Don't the royal officials long for the archers to come out? If we are able to seize the city of Batruna for you, then the men will abandon Abdi Ashurta. Things are not as they were previously. If there are no archers this year, then Abdi will be strong forever. End quote. The situation was dire, and by now the Egyptian officials were beginning to worry about Abdi Ashirta's strength. The lord of Amaru and his allies, the Apiru, had turned the kingdom from a tiny backwater into a modest regional power. Rabadi hammered that point home, and even suggested tentatively that Abdi Ashirta's power now seemed almost a rival to that of the pharaoh. In the same letter, the mayor of Byblos said, or quoted someone saying, Abdi Ashurta is stronger than the king. End quote. By this point, the strength of Amaru perhaps seemed great enough that dislodging them would require a genuine Egyptian army. Still, the troops of Egypt remained at home. None were coming. At the end of chapter 2, we left Rabadi in a precarious situation. The mayor of Byblos was surrounded, and the enemy was raiding his farms. Food supplies were scarce, and he was begging the king of Egypt for assistance. Well, in the second part of that letter, Rabadi tried to find some resolution for his trouble. Since the pharaoh was not replying, Rabadi had no idea how his letters were being received. Was the king ignoring him on purpose, or was Egypt not sending supplies because there were none to be had? If only the mayor had more information, he could adjust his strategies, prepare for the future, if only Pharaoh would tell him something. In an almost heartbreaking letter, the mayor of Byblos said, quote, Moreover, I swear, as the king my lord lives, truly my men are loyal to me. Abdi Ashurta and the Apiru have gone to the prince of Beirut, so that an alliance may be formed between them. Send a garrison to protect your land, lest your city be seized. Listen to me. 
Why do you not at least say to me, that which my servant requests is available or is unavailable? That way I may know what I should do until the king arrives and visits his royal servant. Who is Abdi Ashirta, the servant and dog, that men even mention his name in the very presence of the king? Just let there be one man whose heart is in agreement with my heart, and I would drive Abdi Ashirta from the land of Amiru. May the king heed the words of his servant. May he give men to guard his city, lest Abdi Ashirta gather all of the Apiru, and they seize this town. Send a large force, so that they may drive the enemy from the land of Amiru. When the commissioner of the king was with us, it was to him that we used to write. We cannot write to him now. End quote. The translator of this letter, William Moran, gives it a dark title. He calls it Nothing to Eat, and this seems fitting with Rabadi's dire straits. Byblos was effectively under siege. Even if there were no ladders at the walls, yet the farms were despoiled and the hinterland was empty. If relief did not arrive soon in the form of soldiers and food, then Byblos would have no choice but to surrender. If Pharaoh did not act, he risked losing his most valuable city in the region. Rabadi watched as Abdi Ashurta slowly expanded his borders. With growing concern, the mayor of Byblos sent letter after letter, warning the Egyptian representatives and the pharaoh their overlord of the threat which Abdi and the Apiru posed to the region. Eventually, the situation became truly precarious. As Abdi Ashurta and the Apiru bandits spread across the land, the mayor of Byblos slowly lost control over the last vestiges of his territory. Eventually, the day came. The warriors of Amaru were at the gates of Byblos itself. The struggle had now become a calamity, and in a string of letters, Rabadi begged for assistance. He said, quote, Now he has taken Batruna, and he has moved up against me. Behold the city, he has warriors at the entrance of the gate of Byblos. For a long time he has not moved from the gate, and so we are unable to go out into the countryside. Soon after this, Rabadi also said, quote, Be informed, the war against me is severe. He has taken all of my cities. Byblos alone remains to me. I was in Shigata, and I wrote to you, but you did not listen to me. Then from Batruna I wrote to you. My words went unheeded. Now they have taken my cities. What can I do by myself? You have been negligent of your cities, so that the Apiru dog takes them. It is to you that I have turned. All the other mayors are at peace with Abdi Ashirta. Finally, the enemy warriors began to raid Byblos itself. Rabadi, desperate lest he lose his city and his life, wrote once more, quote, I fall at the feet of my lord seven times and seven times. Why have you sat idly by and done nothing, so that the Apirut dog takes your cities? When he, Abdi Ashurta, saw that no one said anything to him about Sumer, his intentions were reinforced and grew bolder. As a result, he strives to take Byblos. He has attacked me and my orchards, and my own men have become hostile to me. I have been plundered of grain. Please, may you pay a thousand shekels of silver and one hundred shekels of gold, so that Abdi Ashurta will go away from me. He has taken all of my cities. Byblos alone remains. End quote. Byblos was now under siege. It was a dire situation. 
Without relief, the city would fall, and Abdi Ashurta, ruler of Amaru, would have established a new kingdom, a new power in the region. For the ruler of the city, a day of destruction seemed imminent. They have taken the bridge, and the second hall. We have barred the gates, but cannot hold them for long. The ground shakes. Drums, drums in the deep. We cannot get out. A shadow moves in the dark. We cannot get out. With Byblos on its knees, the might of Amaru was stable, at least regionally. The Mitanni invasion had dissipated, with no real gains. Abdi had gone along with the king of Mitanni, and perhaps sworn some kind of loyalty to him. But the threat of that king was once again safely in the east. For now, Abdi's real concern was the pharaoh. He probably wasn't too worried. So far, it had all worked very well, and he had succeeded in every endeavour he pursued. Then again, maybe Abdi should have worried. The Prince of Amaru had been successful, yes, but that success, perhaps, owed as much to the instability of the time as they did to any particular genius for politics. Abdi Ashurta seems almost comical in his transparency, For every letter protesting his loyalty to the pharaoh, there are a dozen letters spelling out his disregard for the peace of the king's empire. Eventually, it would be this disregard that finally brought Abdi to his knees. At some point, the Egyptian government finally responded to the threat of Amaru. It's not exactly clear what happened, but just as Abdi Ashurta was reaching his greatest prominence, the Lord of Amaru was suddenly overthrown. How this happened is a matter of debate, and it rests primarily on the letters of our man on the scene, Rebadi. For all his terror, the mayor of Beblos survived the siege, and he emerged from the Amaru crisis with his life and home intact. As the darkness receded, Rabadi continued sending messages to the king of Egypt, and from these letters we get a slightly confusing picture of events. According to one message, Abdi Ashurta may have been overthrown by his own people. A message to the pharaoh reports how, in a startling turn of events, Abdi may have been the victim of a mutiny. According to this letter, Abdi Ashurta's own people, the Amorites, deposed him because they were lacking certain goods required for tribute. The letter says, quote, The ships of the army must not enter the land of Amaru, for they, the Amorites, have killed Abdi Ashurta. They did this because they had no wool, and he had no garments of lapis lazuli, or ma stone colour, to give as tribute to the land of Mitanni. End quote. Now, this is interesting. According to Rabadi's first letter, the Lord of Amaru died because he failed to gather the goods needed to pay Mitanni. Back in chapter 2, we witnessed a surprise invasion as the king of Mitanni swept into Amaru and plundered it. 
When he did this, the Mitanni king captured Abdi Ashurta and took him away, holding him briefly before releasing him. Perhaps the king of Mitanni released Abdi Ashurta for a price, a ransom, and when Abdi did not gather it in time, some of his followers may have murdered him. This would be a dark end, but perhaps no more than the Lord of Amaru deserved. Abdi Ashurta had gone rogue against his overlord, the pharaoh of Egypt, and if he had also broken a covenant with the Mitanni, well, there are prices for such deceit. That's one possibility of what happened. The second, also recorded by Rabadi, seems to present something entirely different. In another letter to the pharaoh, the mayor of Byblos suggested that Abdi Ashurta died at the hands and justice of Egypt itself. This letter says, quote, Rabadi writes to his lord, the king of all countries, great king, king of battle, etc., etc. I am your loyal servant, and whatever I know or have heard, I report to the king, my lord. Who are they, the dogs, that they could resist the archers of the king? I wrote to your father, and he heeded my words, and he sent archers. Did your father not take Abdi Ashurta for himself? End quote. This letter almost certainly dates to the reign of Akhenaten, and it's one of the best indicators that the deeds of Abdi Ashurta belonged to the later years of Amunhotep III. Rabadi makes reference to the pharaoh's father, which chronologically can only be Amunhotep. But that doesn't solve the question of why this letter presents an entirely different explanation for how Abdi Ashurta died. In the first message, Rabadi suggested that Abdi fell as a result of a mutiny. Now, the mayor of Byblos was suggesting that actually it was soldiers of Egypt that captured Abdi Ashurta. It would be difficult to reconcile these two accounts without some kind of conspiracy in the kingdom of Amaru. So, what gives? Another letter, again from Rabadi, repeats the claim that Egypt, not Mitanni, was responsible for Abdi Ashurta's downfall. Again, a few years after these events, Rabadi wrote a letter to Akhenaten. In it, he referenced the death of Abdi Ashurta. This time, though, he actually backed his claim up with some names. The mayor of Byblos said, Rabadi writes to his lord, the great king, the king of battle. Previously, I sent a man to your father. When Amanarpa, presumably an Egyptian official, came with a small force, I wrote to the palace that the king should send a large force. Did he, the king, not take Abdi Ashurta along with everything belonging to him, just as I said? End quote. Finally, we have some details. According to this version of events, the pharaoh Amunhotep III finally acted and sent an official to Lebanon. The Egyptian governor came with troops, perhaps by ship, and took Abdi Ashurta prisoner. After that, it's not clear what happened. If we follow Rebadi's account, and assuming we trust him to tell everything accurately, it seems that Abdi Ashurta was arrested on the pharaoh's orders. At long last, his deeds caught up with him, and the lord of Amaru met his end, executed on Egyptian soil. Alternatively, though, it's possible he was murdered by his own countrymen, who had lost faith in his leadership, or were concerned about reprisals from Mitanni. Whichever interpretation you take, the result was the same. Overnight, Abdi Ashurta was gone, 
Just like that, the threat was ended. Byblos was saved, the Mediterranean coast was back under Pharaoh's command. The Lord of Amaru, mighty ruler of a regional power, fell to the justice of the king. Which king is unclear, but a king nonetheless. For his crimes, Abdi's life was forfeit, and justice took its due. All of a sudden, the threat of Amaru that had seemed so dire was over, and there was much rejoicing. The dark days of Abdi Ashurta's rise and his war against Byblos were over. The overall narrative, the chronology of events, is difficult to put together with certainty, but if we look at the big picture, some basic elements seem clear. After beginning his reign as a loyal vassal, one put in power by the king of Egypt, Abdi Ashurta began to act on his own initiative. He started expanding his kingdom, gobbling up small towns and forcing local elites to submit to his authority. He did this by allying with local bands or tribes, groups known as the Apiru or outlaws. With their support, the Lord of Amaru could send out war parties to harass his neighbours. At the same time, he could deny any responsibility for the crimes of these brigands. Abdi's motivations are probably lost forever. He was certainly scrupulous in declaring his loyalty to the pharaoh, but his deeds suggest otherwise, and it's hard to know what exactly he was trying to achieve. Challenging the king of Egypt was a no-win situation for Amaru. Pharaoh's military and economic resources were in a whole other league, and when the time came for a reckoning, Abdi's fall certainly seems to have been swift. So what did Abdi Ashurta hope to gain from his deeds? The easiest explanation is that Abdi did it because he could. Knowing that Egypt was far away and the pharaoh disinterested, Abdi Ashurta may have felt that the risk was smaller than the potential reward. Alternatively, the rewards themselves may have been his primary motivation. As ruler of a small backwater kingdom, the lord of Amaru may have felt that he deserved more, or perhaps he craved access to the Mediterranean trade network along the Lebanese coast. It certainly seems that Abdi's efforts focused on the towns near to the sea. Perhaps wealth was his primary goal. If that's the case, it didn't help him in the end. At least one explanation for Abdi's death was that he failed to gather enough plunder to pay the tributes he owed. Speaking of tribute, another explanation is more generous. Abdi Ashurta may have waged his wars and captured towns so that he could strengthen his kingdom against outside threats. The letters which Abdi sent to the pharaoh are consistent, mentioning enemies surrounding him and a war pressing in on his borders. It's entirely possible he was telling the truth. In chapter 2, we saw how the king of Mitanni paid a visit, or invaded, the land of Amaru. The Mitanni lord came in with chariots and troops, and plundered the region, even capturing Abdi himself, and taking him away. Abdi gained his freedom, but he probably had to promise tribute or ransom to the Mitanni king. This whole situation certainly suggests that Abdi was telling the truth in some form. Perhaps the threat to his kingdom was genuine and quite serious. And if we consider Rebadi's letter that suggests Abdi Ashurta died because he couldn't get enough tribute for the king of Mitanni, 
well, that kind of adds to the seriousness. In his own letters to Pharaoh, Abdi refers to, quote, the kings of the Hurrian lands, or Mitanni, as his enemies. So it's possible that his struggles were at least partly a defensive measure. If Abdi made Amaru strong, then it could resist Mitanni with greater strength. Maybe, just maybe, these wars were part of a larger conflict spreading across the Near East. I'm guessing here, but it's possible that the king of Mitanni tried to force countries like Amaru to join his empire. Perhaps Abdi Ashurta was simply caught up in the games of the powerful. So Abdi's motivations are unclear. Perhaps he was an aggressive warmonger, or perhaps he had serious concerns about his security and pursued every option that he could. But this doesn't fully explain why the pharaoh seemed reluctant to act. Even if Abdi's concerns were real, why did the king of Egypt allow him to expand into the Egyptian empire? There are at least two possible reasons why the pharaoh may have waited before responding to Abdi's expansion. The many letters from Rebadi of Byblos paint a dramatic picture, but they only show one part of the overall story. So we have to look at other sources to get a sense of why the king of Egypt did not intervene and halt Abdi at the outset. From archaeological studies, we know that the major bastions of Egypt's power, the fortresses, were not particularly large or impressive during the 18th dynasty. In other words, the Egyptians weren't investing huge resources into controlling or dominating the area of Canaan. Instead, they seem to have had a light hand or laissez-faire approach. The fortresses in this area were small, mainly storehouses for supplies and weapons. The garrisons were probably equally small, and dispersed across several major centres. Rather than have a dozen generals or overseers stomping up and down the country, perhaps the Egyptian government empowered a few men to oversee events in the big picture. In other words, it seems like the Egyptian empire operated on slightly different rules than in the past. A few generations back, warrior pharaohs had swept through the area, conquering cities and subjugating foes. But the recent past had seen a greater emphasis on diplomacy and administration. The days of annual campaigning were long gone. Perhaps royal interventions had become less common as well. If the idea of a light-hand approach is accurate, then it may give us an explanation for the pharaoh's silence. Perhaps the king of Egypt didn't respond to Rabadi because he didn't particularly care whether Abdi Ashurta was powerful or not. Let's unpack that for a second. Bearing in mind that the Canaanite fortresses were small and the Egyptian policy more hands-off, it's possible that another part of Pharaoh's strategy was to let the locals sort their own problems out. After all, did it really matter to Pharaoh if Rabadi or Abdi Ashirta was top dog in Lebanon? Surely, what mattered most was that the local leader paid his tribute and continued to give his loyalty to Egypt. As long as Abdi Ashirta paid his annual fees, perhaps he could do as he wished. It's possible that the pharaoh did not really care which Canaanite ruler was more prominent. So long as the overall system remained stable, then the local details were inconsequential. This interpretation is speculative, even if we base it on archaeological remains and a creative reading of the Amarna letters themselves. 
Obviously, it would be short-sighted for any ruler to let his vassals go rogue and gobble up parts of his empire. Even if the overall system was stable, small changes could still cause massive disruptions in the wider community. Maybe that's why Pharaoh did eventually remove Abdi Ashurta. While the Lord of Amaru could expand a little bit, there were limits to what the king would allow. Perhaps the siege of Byblos was the straw that broke the camel's back. Capturing small coastal towns, even a bastion like Sumer, was permissible, but messing with a vital trade city, one of Egypt's oldest allies? Maybe that was going too far. When Abdi Ashurta took minor villages and ports, that was one thing. When he attacked Byblos directly, perhaps that was crossing the line. Putting all of this together, Abdi Ashurta's rise is a complex but fascinating little story. In building his kingdom up from a local backwater to regional power, the Lord of Amaru made great strides. Abdi was cunning, playing his cards well and using diplomatic and strategic tools to great effect. With a mix of sneak attacks, deception and misinformation, the Lord of Amaru obscured the reality of what he was doing. Although we can look back and see Amaru expanding at the expense of the Egyptian empire, things were probably not as clear-cut for those living in the moment. For every report that arrived at the pharaoh's palace, and every letter from his many, many vassals, the king of Egypt may have been unsure exactly what was happening a thousand kilometres away. This would explain how Abdi was able to get away with his aggressive movements for so long. It would also explain how the next phase of these international troubles would play out. Just as the blood of Abdi Ashurta spilled and the warlord's career ended, a new generation would come to power. Before too long, Abdi Ashurta's sons would make their own mark on the world. Thank you for joining me on this extra long journey through Bronze Age diplomacy. If you've made it to the end, congratulations. Allow me to extend my thanks for your listenership and your support. On the next episode of the History of Egypt podcast, we will find the Kingdom of Amaru moving once again. Although Abdi Ashurta was dead, his power did not disappear. Instead, the mantle passed to Abdi's sons, a group that inherited all of their father's cunning and doubled down on his aggressiveness. Join me soon for episode 126, Amorites 2, The Crimes of Aziru. I've been your host, Dominic Perry, and this is the History of Egypt podcast. Oh, one more thing. Moving forward, my subscribers on Patreon will have access to a special perk. While I cut many things out of my episodes, either for time or to keep the narrative clear, I hate to leave good information on the cutting room floor. So from now on, patrons at the overseer and higher levels will have access to a special epilogue. These will be tidbits, short discussions, that delve slightly deeper into information, information that I find interesting, but isn't essential to understand the story. If you're craving even more detail than I already include, every scrap of information this might be the thing for you. You can find a link to the podcast Patreon in the episode description. 
Of course, if you're just here for the story, then thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and may the great god Ashirta smile down upon you. This episode was specially supported by Ellen, Linda, Neil, and Terry, my priest-level backers on Patreon. And the music is by Derek and Brandon Feichter. Follow the link in the episode description to hear more of their amazing work. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.